are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are going to talk all about methadone today. Paula is just going to dispel all those mysteries of methadone maintenance for us. She has a vast amount of experience and has worked in several different clinical settings in methadone maintenance clinics. So I am really excited. Hey, Paula, you fill us in. Okay, well, I think this is a good topic. It's like an OG topic for addiction medicine. And I actually can't believe we haven't done a dedicated episode on it yet. Methadone is a very old drug. It's a synthetic opioid that was developed back in the 1930s in Germany by a drug company um, to solve the opium shortage. And I don't know all the details about this. I'm sure there are many listeners who are history buffs who understand that this probably had a lot to do with wartime Germany, but it was a known effective full opioid agonist developed way back in the 30s. And then in the 1950s, it began to be studied as a treatment for opioid addiction at the Addiction Research Center of the Narcotics Farm in Lexington, Kentucky. But more famously, it was studied by Rockefeller University physicians Robert Dole and Marie Nyswander in the 1960s in New York City. And they studied it specifically for the use of, uh, for cravings and withdrawal for people who were addicted to heroin. And they're the ones who really advocated for its use. Out of that emerged kind of the, the use of methadone for opioid use disorder. And by 19, mid-1970s, methadone clinics had opened in a lot of big cities in the country, including Chicago and New York and New Haven, so mostly on the East Coast. And since then, you know, many methadone maintenance clinics or opioid treatment programs, as they're called, OTPs, have opened all around the country. Not everywhere, unfortunately, and especially not in rural areas. Many of them, there's many, many many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in this country alone who are on methadone for opioid use disorder and definitely around the world. Some countries don't allow methadone maintenance for opioid use disorder. And some, of course, do use methadone and as well as other full opioid agonists like heroin, diacetyl morphine. But that's a brief history of methadone. That's kind of where it came from. In terms of the history of regulation, the federal government has regulated the use of methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder because it is a controlled substance Okay, the methadone clinic model was carved into law in the United States in 1974, and that was when Congress passed the Narcotic Addiction Treatment Act. The regulations around methadone, I mean, this really came from the stigma. So this was fears of accidental overdose, diversion. It really evolved in such a way that primary care physicians almost never delivered methadone treatment. And it was also the stigma that not in my backyard type of mentality. This has placed us in a situation where we methadone is only delivered in a methadone clinic. What we are all familiar with is then the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000. It allowed physicians to prescribe and administer buprenorphine in an office-based setting, but that has not affected the delivery of methadone. Methadone that is still only in a methadone clinic. Exactly. So those are otherwise known as OTPs or opioid treatment programs, and they are freestanding, typically service providers that 
deliver methadone under very strict federal regulation and that have to, no matter where you are in the country, the clinic has to comply by the federal regulations according to methadone. For all the reasons that go into the risk of using a control a controlled substance to treat an addiction, basically. That's how we ended up with methadone maintenance clinics or OTPs. And why was methadone so helpful? I guess that's the, that's the underlying question. And why do we still use it? That's what we're going to talk about today is, you know, what is methadone? Why is it helpful? What's the data and efficacy surrounding it? What are the risks? What should we know? What are some of the things we should just know in terms of addiction medicine, like some of the little tricks and tips, I guess, the mysteries of methadone moving forward. But methadone is full mu opioid agonist. It uh, reduces opioid withdrawal and cravings. It also blunts or blocks the euphoric effects of other opioids. And it's actually the most used and most studied opioid use disorder medication in the world. Even still, I thought that was interesting, even though buprenorphine is becoming more and more prevalent. And just like buprenorphine, actually, the World Health Organization considers methadone an essential medication. So because methadone has been around for the use of opioid use disorder um, since the 1950s, we have a lot of data surrounding it, which is great. It's very robust. And we have many clinical trials, meta-analyses that have shown that it effectively reduces opioid use. It treats opioid use disorder. So all the kind of elements of addiction, like the control, compulsive use, use in spite of consequences. And it does retain people in treatment better than placebo or no medication. Um, in the US, there's about 1,500 federally regulated opioid treatment programs. And some of those programs only deliver methadone. Some of them also, most of them, I'd say also offer buprenorphine. Some of them, although I have to say, I don't know many offer extended release naltrexone. And I'd say at the very core of the program lies the assessment of a patient who's looking to be treated for their opioid use, the delivery of methadone in a monitored fashion, and then the requirement for counseling and monitoring, which includes drug testing. So those would be like the core services that are included in a methadone clinic. So let's go over that again. Assessment, I guess a treatment plan, like deciding whether methadone is the right medication or something else is indicated. Direct observation of dose administration. So patients come and dose every day initially till they gain take-homes of their methadone. Methadone for the purpose of methadone maintenance clinics is typically delivered in a liquid form for ease of um, direct observation observation purposes. And then this notion of take-home doses, which are dispensed under certain conditions, which actually is a form of contingency management. And we'll talk about that. Uh, the counseling, which state by state requires there to be so much counseling that's offered and required of the participant. And then drug testing. So typically observe urine drug testing to monitor the patient's progress at treatment. Some methadone programs do more than deliver the methadone and the counseling drug testing. They also deliver mental health care, primary care, treatment of infectious diseases, group support, and some harm, other harm reduction measures. So it just depends on your area, your local clinics as to what they might offer. There are brick and mortar programs, there are mobile programs, and a lot has changed in the pandemic regarding methadone. And we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Yeah, that's really interesting, Paula. And I think it's really important to note, and this is just from Sam Says Tip 63, they are associated with reduced risk of overdose-related deaths, 
reduce risk of HIV and hepatitis C infection, lower rates of cellulitis, lower rates of HIV risk behavior, and reduced criminal behavior. I think that last one's really interesting. All those outcomes we've been able to measure. I mean, there's lots of data supporting that. Absolutely. Yeah. All those parameters, which are very important, right? So yeah, methadone retains patients. It reduces opioid use. And we also know that they're, that higher doses are more effective than lower doses. So doses 80 to 120 milligrams are more effective than doses less than that, which is quite controversial in like clinically, not in the research world, but you often will come talk about stigma. You often come across providers or patients or people or organizations who are very anti-high dose methadone. And I put that in quotation marks, but we do have the data showing that doses greater than 80 milligrams are more, have superior outcomes than lower. Which is really interesting because when you say high dose, I mean, I encounter patients on much higher doses than that, that that's considered high dose. Because I I frequently will encounter patients on double that. Yeah, it's really variable according to the program. I mean, there are some programs that cap their dose, so they don't dose anyone really higher than 60 or 80 milligrams. And then there are programs who they, they seem to have people in very high doses, like super doses, like in the three and 400 milligram range, and you see everything in between. The data shows that, you know, longer duration is better, at least 12 months is more effective, and then at least greater than 80 milligrams is more effective. Now, because methadone is a full mu opioid agonist, it has no ceiling effect, right? And so therefore, you can keep dosing it and dosing it, and you have increasing effect on the opioid receptor. But that means you also have increased adverse effect, including sedation, respiratory depression, constipation, sweating, etc. And that therein lies the risk of methadone. So people obviously become highly tolerant to methadone, just like they do any other opioid. And they can tolerate a dose of 180 milligrams because they've been on it. Whereas if I gave a night Eve patient 180 milligrams, I'd kill them. Uh, But there are inherent risks with very high dose, and you have to be discriminatory about monitoring those folks and making sure you understand their co-occurring medical problems, psychiatric problems, and their other drugs, and that you're monitoring their their QTC interval, so a certain interval in their heart and that kind of thing. But yeah, I I love that data. I think that's really interesting. That is such a good point, Paula. Let's talk about pharmacokinetics and dynamics, because that's where dosing and timing and adjusting doses, I think, is so important. And understanding that even if you are not working in a methadone clinic, because they will be coming to you, sometimes experiencing side effects and you're prescribing other medications, particularly when you're dealing sometimes with other psychiatric medications, or even some of our common antibiotics, other things that interact with methadone, you need to know Absolutely. You're dead right. So yeah, um, methadone, we've already talked about the fact that it's an opioid agonist. So it acts on mu opioid receptor. It also actually has affinity at the NMDA receptor in the in the central nervous system. For those of you pharmacodynamic pharmacology buffs, it's an ionotropic glutamate receptor. So it blocks glutamate. And this is an interesting quality. And actually, it's one of the isomers of methadone that does this. So methadone has two isomers. It has an L and an S isomer. And for those of you taking the addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry boards, 
you need to know that the rest of us, I mean, I don't know, Darlene, did you and I remember that there were two isomers? I think I had forgotten that for several years, but I know we studied it, but I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Right. It's a classic board exam, but because one of the isomers is active at the NMDA receptor, this gives methadone very special quality in terms of pain, in terms of its analgesic properties. So of course it has analgesic properties because it's an opioid agonist. Because it has activity at the NMDA receptor, it has an effect on neuropathic pain fibers, which is why some people do very well on methadone. And it's also why they don't do well when they come off of it. They have all kinds of problems in terms of pain and neuropathic pain and anxiety and depression. That's more that could just be explained by just being off of methadone. And it probably has to do with the fact that it acts on an NDA. The other thing about methadone, besides the fact that it acts on a couple of different receptors, is it has an incredibly variable pharmacokinetic range. So the half-life is long. It's a very long-acting drug. And this is why it is a good addiction treatment drug, right? We've talked about this before on the podcast. Anytime you have a medication, well, not anytime, but generally longer-acting medications are more effective for treat the treatment of addiction than short-acting medications because you want to achieve a nice steady state. You don't want peaks and troughs. You want to cover people's withdrawal and cravings without it having a peak and a trough effect, a peak and a trough effect, like, for example, heroin does or fentanyl does. Methadone, has an average half-life of about 24 hours. And it can be variable. For some people, it can be less than that. They can be rapid metabolizers. And for other people, it can be much longer than that. It could be up to 60 hours or even longer. And that could just be an innate quality that their liver metabolizes, you know, methadone either quickly or slowly, or it can be due to other medical conditions that they have, such as liver disease or lung disease or medications that they're taking. And you already alluded to this, that it's very very important to understand the drug-drug interactions between methadone um, and other medications because it does interact with everything. Because it has a very long half-life anyway, and it has no ceiling effect, it takes about five half-lives or five days for methadone to reach steady state. And this is very important because when you are starting someone on methadone, they do not get the effect that they're going to finally have within the first day or two. And this can be very frustrating for patients who don't feel well, they have withdrawal, they come in and they they want to feel better right away. They want to stop using. But because of the nature of methadone's half-life and its potency and its variable pharmacokinetics, it's actually federally regulated that you cannot start people on a dose gen- higher than 30 milligrams for opioid tolerant people. 30 milligrams of methadone is not very much for an opioid tolerant person, right, Darlene? I mean, that's not a lot, but you have to consider that on day two, you get another dose of 30 milligrams, you still have at least 15 milligrams sitting around from day one. So your total serum dose is if it's, I mean, we're considering bioavailability to be 100%, which it's not, but is theoretically say 45 milligrams. And you have this compounded dosing effect where every day up to day five, you have increasing amounts of methadone accumulating in the system, even if you're giving the same dose day after day. So this is true for any long-acting drug such as Librium or phenobarbital, but it's incredibly important to understand about methadone because of the risk of respiratory depression with methadone and overdose and acknowledging that most 
deaths by overdose of methadone occur within the first two weeks of initiating methadone. And that's because people either take it themselves, don't feel the effect they want, so just keep they so they just keep taking it, and then they accumulate a dose on day three, and then they overdose without even knowing. Or as providers, we overdose them too quickly. We give them a dose of 30 or 40 on the first day and then increase it by 10 milligrams every day, and someone accumulates and they, they get too much. So it's very important to remember that. Long half-life takes about five days to reach a steady state. And according to federal regulations, you have to start low and go slow. In fact, you start no higher than 30 milligrams for opioid tolerant people and at a lower dose for people who have certain conditions like comorbidities that we'll talk about, or maybe are not as opioid tolerant as you would expect. And you have to hold the dose steady for four to five days before you can increase it. And if you know methadone program, or if you in the hospital are increasing them every day, you, you got to be careful because you're, you're putting people at risk. That is such a good point, though, that is so important to understand very long half-life, and it can vary 8 to 59 hours. That is such a wide variability, and that's where this drug can be so tricky from person to person. Let's talk a little bit about inductions. Before like they're achieving steady state, you said they can be releasing from tissue reservoirs and you can get increasing plasma levels and toxicity, even though they're not chasing dose. That's where part of that comes from. Once you're kind of at a, a stable dose, then tell us about that. Like, when do you get those serum peaks? Oh, sure. Well, I guess we should back up and say, you know, in terms of induction, if you're initiating methadone treatment, first of all, it's really important to observe people and, and get a good history and a good physical exam. You want to absolutely make sure that someone is tolerant to opioids before you do that. And you want to understand the degree of tolerance. So there's a big difference between someone who is taking 30 milligrams of hydrocodone a day and has an opioid use disorder versus someone who's taking two to three grams of fentanyl a day, right? <laughs> or, you know, two grams yes. of heroin IV, right? The first dose for patients, 10 to 30 milligrams. It takes about two to four hours after dosing for serum levels to peak. There is a caveat in the federal regulation that if a patient is given the maximum first dose, so they're given 30 milligrams because say that they have been using two grams of heroin IV, they come into your clinic and withdrawal, there's, you know, cows is through the roof, they look terrible, you give them 30 milligrams and you know they're going to feel awful and have continued withdrawal. It's not going to touch them much. Federal regulations do allow the patient to remain in the clinic. And if they continue to have withdrawal symptoms within three to four hours after dosing, actually even two to four, you're allowed to give them another five to 10 milligram dose on that same day. So maximum dose on the first day could be 40 milligrams. And then you would give them 40 milligrams every day for the next four days, increase it from there. And typically patients are evaluated, they should be seen by a provider in order to get their dose titrated up. And I mean, the thing that you're looking for, and this is true for treatment of opioid use disorder, always when you're treating opioid use disorder, you want to look for the resolution of withdrawal and you want to look for reduction of cravings. And of course, objective measures like reduction in urine positive drug 
you know, urine positive opioid screens and self-report of use, right? So you titrate up the dose from there to when the patient begins to feel all of those measures without having adverse effects, most significantly sedation, because methadone can be very sedating. And because of the half-life, you don't make dose increases any more frequently than five to seven days, because you don't know the full effect of a dose increase for five days. Say I had a patient come in, they were using a gram of heroin daily, they want to stop. I'd start them on 30 milligrams, see them back in five days, increase it. Maybe maybe they're still having a lot of withdrawal, increase it to 40 milligrams, see them back in five to seven days and keep going up. Typical dose increases, I would say typical dose increases would be five to 10 milligrams an increase, although that's not always true. You can increase it by whatever you want. Methadone in a methadone clinic is liquid, like we said. Every methadone clinic has a pharmacist that's associated with it, which is wonderful, and they titrate this machine that pours the methadone to the to the milligram. And so you can order methadone in a milligram increment. So you could make a dose increase from 40 to 43 or 50 to 51 if you wanted. Uh, typically, you don't increase methadone more than in 10 milligram increments. I've, I've typically, I've never done that, I have to say. Maybe, I wouldn't say never, maybe I've had someone who had really extreme tolerance or they had something going on and I maybe bumped them up by 15 milligrams in one shot, but I very, very rarely do that due to the risk of, of overshooting. You're not going to see the effects of your dose increase for five to seven days. And I think what we're used to is sometimes, and even the patient, well, I take something and I feel better in two hours or in less than that. So that's what is so important. I think just educating obviously our listeners, but also when you are dosing your patients, I think just when you're doing your evaluation, that's an important discussion to have with your patient. Like, hey, we're doing this and you're going to feel better. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Support and education and support the patient, letting them know that they may not feel 100% for that first week or even beyond, that it's going to be a process. And also warning them that if they feel intoxicated or any adverse effect, to let them know immediately. And uh, if they if they continue to use opioids or any other CNS depressant like alcohol or benzodiazepine, that they put themselves at increased risk of overdose, like even more so than when they were just, and I put just in quotation marks, but just using their their illicit opioid. You know, at the same time, you have to take into consideration that supply of heroin now or pressed pills or anything is so dangerous that methadone, we have such good evidence backing up methadone. We know it's a good, safe treatment that even though induction or initiation of methadone sounds scary and we do have to be careful, people don't feel well right away. It's a much, much better option than letting people continue on their on their current use. So just educate them, support them, like you said, see them back frequently. Don't just start people on methadone and then not see them back. Now, when I'm talking to you listeners by about managing methadone, remember that you're not managing or starting people on methadone unless there's two things going on. Either one, you now work for a federally regulated methadone clinic, or two, you work in a hospital and you are prescribing and managing methadone initiation under the three-day exception rule where you are allowed to start people on methadone basically as an emergency route to getting them started on treatment for their opioid use disorder. So that's the Controlled Substance Act exception that allows people to administer an opioid for acute opioid withdrawal while you're making preparation for ongoing care. So otherwise, we're just talking about it just so that we all understand it. Yes. 
we have never prescribed methadone outside of those settings. Oh, but Dr. Peterson, I mean, it's so much cheaper for you just to give it to me and I have pain and I'm so doing so well in my methadone clinic and it costs me $80 a week. Can't you just give me my methadone? Just, I mean, my dose is 80, 80 milligrams a day. Uh, can't you just prescribe it to me? My insurance will pay for it if you do it. That is the fastest way to lose your license. <laughs> Good answer. Do not ever do that. <laughs> Yeah, but you see it happen a lot, right? And I think a lot of providers Unfortunately, actually yes. do that. Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of people maybe do it without even realizing that they're breaking the law. <laughs> but yes, you are not allowed to prescribe methadone to a patient with opioid use disorder in an outpatient setting. You are for pain, of course, if they just have pain, methadone, but you're not allowed to. If Now that might change. It likely will change in the upcoming years because of the pandemic and the way people responded to methadone. It looks like the regulation of methadone for the treatment of addiction may be changing, but it hasn't yet. Because I'm going to be on my soapbox for a minute. We run into this a lot. A, a comparison, the majority of methadone overdose deaths are on patients where it's been prescribed for pain, not in a federally regulated methadone clinic. And there is good studies that show that. Patients will come to you and they're ask your advice. And if you have a patient who is already on methadone in a methadone clinic and they want to switch to a pain clinic and they have an opiate use disorder and a pain disorder, I always recommend they stay within their methadone clinic. They're better regulated. They're safer. They have an opiate use disorder. And that clinic knows how to manage their opiate use disorder. Oh my goodness. I agree with you. Yes. No, that's it. Because the thing is, it's not just the methadone medication is helpful. I mean, we know that's true, but methadone maintenance and methadone clinics are much more than just the medication. It has a lot to do with the community showing up every day and having the same nurse or two nurse, one of two nurses give you your medication every single day and say, hey, how are you? How are you doing today? And having groups that you go to required counseling as often as once a week. That has a lot to do with people getting well, right? We know that's true. Also, the contingency management aspect of methadone maintenance, really, that plays a role. And what I mean by that is when you initially start going to a methadone clinic, so say, Darlene, say I'm, I'm a new patient at methadone clinic. I have to go, say the clinic is open. Most clinics are open five or six days a week. I don't, there might be some, there are probably some, I bet in New York, big cities that are open seven days a week, but most of them are open six or seven days a week. I'm going to a clinic that's open six days a week. I must go six mornings a week. They're typically open early in the morning to account for people who work construction type jobs and have to be on the work site by 6 a.m. So they often open at 5 a.m. And I must be there in person to dose six days a week. They will give me a take-home dose for the seventh day, or if they're a seven-day awake clinic, like we have one in, in here in, in Salt Lake, I have to be there seven days a week until I have proven certain things, and then I will earn a take-home. So then I'll earn another day a week that I can stay home and dose and not have to get up at five in the morning. That includes being in the clinic for a minimum of three months. So you don't get any take-homes unless you've been in the clinic for three months, period, even if you're doing smashingly. And then you have to have negative urine drug screens. So when they 
you do random urine drug screening, it's negative, you earn a take home. And then it continues on every three month increments, basically, you can earn a take home. So this federally regulated. So basically, you earn one earned dose a week beyond the weekly clinic closure day in the first 90 days of treatment. And then you earn two doses during the second 90 days, three doses during the third, up to six doses during the last 90 days. So basically, after a year of treatment, if I've gone to clinic every day, if, I, if I've showed up, that's the other regulation. I've shown up, gotten my doses every day, I've gone to counting, and I have progressive urine drug screens, I could have up to two weeks of doses that I could take home after a year. Now, that's an incentive, right? Because who wants to get up six days or seven days a week and go to a clinic and stand in line and get a dose? So a lot of people really work hard to do that. And that's the contingency management part of it. I think that's really helpful because there's a lot of providers that will refer to a methadone clinic not understanding what the culture of the clinic's like. Kind of explain what dosing's like. So when they arrive in the clinic, what is that like? Yeah, well, I mean, I have experience probably witnessing or working in a maybe four or five programs. So I, I can't speak for all programs, but they're very congenial places. They typically, at the same time, they have strict rules about no loitering and that kind of thing for obvious reasons. They don't want to attract, you know, folks who are going to be involved in the distribution business. But if I was checking in, like I just said, I'm the, I'm the sample candidate. I would go, I'd check myself in. Typically, you are assigned a number as your identifier instead of a name. This is just to give you heightened confidentiality. And in fact, all of your encounters at the clinic involve that number. I, I know all of my patients in methadone clinic by their number, not their name. And that's not to dehumanize people at all, but it's really just to protect their privacy. Obviously, as the medical provider, we have their real name linked to their number. But anytime they're called for a dose or to do a urine drug screen or in counseling, they're only identified by their number. So you check in typically with a front desk person. There are some programs where you check in yourself. So you go in and you log in to a computer system. And then you typically wait for your dose turn. And depending on how busy your clinic is, you might go walk right up to the window or you might have to wait. Methadone clinics have a little, they typically have an area where all the doses have been poured and stored and a methadone nurse is working and it's behind a secure barrier, like a glass, plexiglass barrier that's unbreakable. And that's again for safety and security reasons that people don't rob and uh, rob the methadone machine, basically. So you present to the nurse window. Typically, the nurse checks in with you and says, how are you doing? How's your day? How are you feeling? And of course, the nurses get to know the clients very well. I mean, a lot of these clients go there for years. They verify their number, their identity, and then a machine automates the pouring of their dose. Their dose is given to them with a little cup of water in order to ensure that the dose is swallowed. And they do observed observations, say that my dose is 75 milligrams. The machine would pour it on the spot. The nurse would hand it to me. I drink it and then typically take a chaser of plain water out of a cup that's there, show my mouth that I don't have any more medication in my cheeks or under my tongue. And then I'm done with the medication part of it. The visit may also involve a random observed drug screen, and it may involve going to a group, and it may involve 
going to your therapy session. And, you know, then depending on if you have any of those things, you attend those and then you leave for the day. If you're going to be picking up take-home doses, it would be the same process. You would dose your dose for the day and then they would verify that who you are, etc. And they would give you all of your doses that you have allotted to you and you would put them in a lock, a, a mobile lockbox, which you have to have so a little lunchbox type device that has a lock, a combination. And that's how it has to be stored. Yeah. And then you leave with those. You're responsible for them until you come back again and, and repeat the process. Again, if you've never been to a methadone clinic or have never experienced that part of our training, and I think most most fellows and residents do part of your rotations are through a methadone clinic. So you at least spend some time there. And I think that's very helpful. So even if you never work in a methadone clinic, at least having a rotation or at least spending some time there, it's helpful even if you don't plan to work in one so that you understand that process, so you understand where you're referring your patients to. Yeah, and also remembering that the dosing of the medication is not the only service there, that often there'll be people who do overdose prevention and education and and community services. A lot of these places have housing specialists, transportation specialists, food scarcity specialists. It can be like a medical home or a recovery home center, a lot of methadone programs. When you go to get your dose, some caseworker might be checking in with you to see how you're doing with your housing application or with folk rehab or you know you it's your turn to get your annual physical with the with the clinic to get your TB test or to get your hepatitis uh, B and C testing done there's a lot more services than that so say that you are allowed two take-home doses right you're in say you're on month five of your treatment at a program and you want to go out of town or you know you have to go out of town for work for four days you can apply to do courtesy dosing at a methadone clinic out of town. So this is very common. So say I'm going to Denver and I'll be there for the long weekend or I've got to go for work. My clinic would apply on my behalf to a clinic in Denver for me to courtesy dose there while I'm there. It's very commonly done. They would receive the request, know what dose you have, and you would present there and get dosed there just like you would get dosed here in Salt Lake. Very, 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 very rarely can you apply for an additional take-home dose outside of what you're allotted, but you have to go through an exception process literally to the federal government and they have to approve it. It's that strict to get an extra dose. So this is like when you were saying don't let people leave their methadone program and you become their pain management provider if they have a history of addiction, just remember that like just to even get one extra dose within this program, you have to basically jump through all these hoops. So to just start prescribing people 30 days at a time of their medication is just, it's outside of the realm of uh, good practice at this point. No, that's such a good point. Understanding what does the methadone clinic regulations, so the admission criteria, let's talk about that because it has some very strict regulations. The OTP admission criteria, Mm -hmm. so you have to be at least 18 years old. Mm -hmm. They have to have obviously a diagnosis of, and this is the DSM-5 criteria of opiate use disorder, and one year history of use. Right. And that's important. Now, there are a few exceptions, which you can tell us that. Yeah. Paula. And it, that can get tricky because a lot of time, I mean, you you guys, you see this, someone develops a, an opioid addiction. It can happen very quickly and doesn't make ton of sense to wait for people to have 12 months of use. That doesn't have to 
to be contiguous use. Luckily, there is an exception and you can waive the history requirement per 42 CFR if you are a pregnant woman. So if women are pregnant and they present for methadone treatment, as long as they consent and are over 18 and have a history of opioid use disorder, you can admit them. If they're a former patient, so they may not have been using contiguously one year just prior to admission, but they were a former patient up to two years after discharge, you can admit them. Or if they're a patient that's within six months of release from incarceration, you can admit them as well. And I have to say, we've also admitted people where it's a little bit like, well, it's been eight months and they they don't meet any of those three exceptions, but we've documented it and spoken to our state methadone representative about the fact that we really feel like the risk of not treating them the risk, yeah, the risk of not treating them far exceeds the risk of treating them. The other thing, I guess, that that we have to account for are people under 18. And I have had a couple of kids who are under 18 who've presented for treatment. I mean, more commonly, kids who are under 18 with an opioid use disorder are going to be trialed on buprenorphine first, right? That's much more common. If they have two documented unsuccessful medically supervised treatments for opioid use disorder. So for example, they were tried on naltrexone and they were tried on buprenorphine or they were tried on buprenorphine twice in a 12-month period and they have consent from their parent or guardian, written consent, then you can admit them if they're under 18. And then of course, that, that's just like the federal regulation stuff. And then of course, medically, you want to make sure you have the right person to put on methadone as well. That's kind of the medical part of it that, that we haven't talked about yet. Backing up a little bit, let's talk about the metabolism this is always tested. That helps us kind of get into that as some of the other comorbidities and drug-drug interactions. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay, so methadone, we've already talked about its variable pharmacokinetics, its very long half-life, the fact that it's a full opioid agonist. So we already are alerted to the fact that it could be a very dangerous medication. It's also a very helpful medication. It is metabolized via the hepatic CYP450-3A4 enzyme system. The two B6 and the 2D6 enzymes are also involved with its metabolism. And it is a a CYP3A4 inducer. So it increases the activity of CYP3A4 and it even accelerates its own metabolism in some individuals. So it can be kind of a pain of a medication, kind of like carbamazepine. And all of this is is variable according to the patient. So we all remember from, I don't know, what is it, biochemistry? I don't know where where we all learned this or pharmacology that the amount of CYP enzyme activity within person to person is really variable. But because methadone is a strong inducer of the CYP3A4 system, and because it's hepatically metabolized, there are lots of things to consider. So first of all, we need to consider what else impacts the liver and liver metabolism, and the fact that it's a full opioid agonist and can be very sedating when we decide to prescribe it or or manage our patients. So we want to always be very careful with people people who have liver disease. Now, these are not absolute contraindications by any means. Again, you've got to balance the risk versus the benefit, or you've got to see if maybe an alternative medication may be more appropriate, like not like buprenorphine, but patient with hepatic disease, advanced cirrhosis, for example, who are not going to metabolize well, maybe they just need a lower dose or they're not a great candidate. They have pulmonary disease or sleep apnea, and they're, they're going to have significant risk of respiratory depression. Or if they're on benzodiazepines or other CNS depressing medications, it doesn't 
preclude them from being on methadone, but you have to manage it differently. If they have a history of heart disease, particularly prolonged QT syndrome with a QT interval longer than 500 milliseconds, they should not be started on methadone. And if they're an older patient, if they are over 65, you want to stop and use caution. It just may not be a great medication for them because of the variable metabolism and the comorbidities. Is it If it's a good choice for that patient for other reasons, then it's a good choice and you start low and go slow. The other thing is that you were talking about are all the drug-drug interactions. Now, because it's a CYP3A inducer, we have to think about what other medications patients could be on that, one, methadone is going to affect their activity, and two, how they are going to affect methadone. We've got, so if methadone induces CYP3A4, any other medications that induce CYP450 are going to increase methadone metabolism, right? It's just going to speed that whole process up, right? If you add a CYP450 inducer to someone who's taking methadone, they're going to probably go into withdrawal because you're going to induce the metabolism of their methadone. I learned this the hard way, Darlene. <laughs> I feel so bad about this, but... We all have. <laughs> yeah. The the class of medications that this falls into are, would be some antibiotics like rifampin, many antiretrovirals, like HIV drugs, efavirin, I'm terrible at saying that, nivirapine and ritonavir. My ID colleagues are cringing at that. I'm sorry. And anticonvulsants like carbamazepine, phenobarbital, phenotone. thing to some poor patient when I was in residency, I gave her, she was stable on methadone and I gave her carbamazepine to manage with something else and she got so sick, put her right into withdrawal. The very powerful effect, once you see it once, you'll never do it again. And conversely, other medications that inhibit CYP450 activity will decrease methadone's metabolism. So you can end up over-sedating your patient or over-medicating them. So say a patient's stable on 60 milligrams of methadone and they go to their doctor and they have a UTI that's an old-fashioned doctor and they put their their doc puts them on ciprofloxacin for their UTI. Well, next day, spouse or partner calls and says, I can't wake my partner up. She's so tired today. Ciprofloxacin has decreased the metabolism of her methadone and patient could be actually experiencing the dose effect of, say, 80 milligrams. I mean, I'm pulling this out of my head, but 80 milligrams of methadone instead of 60, right? This is true for some antibiotics like ciprofloxacin and the macrolids like erythromycin, which are so common, right? We use those antibiotics all the time. Some antacids like cimetidine, antifungals like fluconazole, we use that all the time too. And then a class of medications that are very commonly used in our population, the SSRIs like paroxetine and sertraline, citalopram. So it's very common for patients to get started on citalopram or sertraline and you have to adjust their methadone or if you're starting a medication on a patient who's on methadone maintenance, make sure you tell them to tell their methadone provider to possibly adjust their dose. Yes, immediately they need to notify their methadone provider. So just remember this, if you have a patient on methadone or you're, and hopefully you know that, just be careful before you prescribe anything to them. If you prescribe an inducer, you could put them into withdrawal, something like an anticonvulsant. If you prescribe an inhibitor, like an antibiotic or an antidepressant, you could decrease their metabolism and over-sedate them. Well, and just pointing out, like, it's not even sometimes you just prescribed it, like particularly with antidepressants, if you increased their dose of their sertraline, for instance, they come in, they're more depressed or they're more anxious. That's very common. You increased it, not even thinking. You are affecting their methadone metabolism and you could cause this person to have an unintentional overdose. Right. And this is my soapbox. Unfortunately, methadone maintenance, so methadone that is prescribed from an OTP 
or a federally regulated program in most states is not required to be disclosed on the controlled substance database. And that's for privacy reasons. And that may be changing. I know that there's a bill that's going to be passed in Utah that might change that, but that can make it very difficult as a medical provider for patients who don't disclose that they're taking methadone because there's shame and stigma around being on methadone. And a lot of patients choose not to disclose it. You might prescribe gluconazole or rifampin or start someone on HIV treatment without understanding that they're on methadone because it's not on their controlled substance database. This is where getting a good history makes a big difference. Hopefully your patients can trust you to give their history and to always do urine drug screening so that you have objective data so that you can tell if someone's taking methadone. And I think that's just something to always recall too before you give them a medication. Other medication or other drug-drug interactions that we need to be aware of besides the CYP450 drugs are any drugs that prolong the QT interval. You need to really be careful when prescribing or increasing the dose of those because methadone in and of itself prolongs the QT. I'm not going to go into those meds because if you are a prescriber, you should know what they are, but be very, very careful with QT prolonging drugs. Make sure that you understand that methadone in and of itself prolongs the QT. Now, the methadone clinic should be monitoring patients and making sure that their QT interval is not prolonging, although there's some methadone clinics that don't have a EKG and they might be referring patients out to their primary care to do that monitoring. And guess what? A lot of patients don't have primary care, so it doesn't get done. You must understand that the QT interval can get prolonged. Limit for methadone, like when would you decrease the meth? Consider stopping methadone. If it's men, if it's over 450 milliseconds for men for the QTC, or if it's over 460 to 470 for women, then we need to um, absolutely think about changing the dose of the methadone, alert the methadone clinic, talk to cardiology, etc. Yeah, that is so important. So adverse effects, we talked a little bit about that, but you need to know when your patient is coming to you, is this an effect from too much medication or is this the common adverse effects of the medication? There, there are many and we see them. And so what Paula just talked about, the QT prolongation, constipation. I mean, we see that for hyperhidrosis, respiratory depression. That's why you need to be very, very careful about prescribing other medications that cause respiratory depression, screening for sleep apnea, sexual dysfunction that goes back to this is a full mu opiate agonist medication. So it affects those sex hormones, severe hypotension. And I've seen this. And so you you do need to monitor patients. Paula, tell us a little bit like the orthostatic hypotension syncope. Sometimes you will see this. And I think it gets missed when you have patients who sometimes come in and don't disclose that they're on methadone. And then there is, and that's in the labeling, there is the potential for misuse and abuse. You do have the neonatal abstinence syndrome associated with methadone. Who are starting on methadone and who are on methadone, they, they should get a full physical exam and history at intake, including labs, and they should get a history and physical at least annually, including, you know, obviously a pregnancy test, liver function testing, hepatitis and HIV testing, and alcohol and uh, drug testing uh, routinely, and tuberculosis testing too. So, And then of course, just monitoring for these adverse effects, always asking, documenting for those. That is really important. Okay. I just have a couple more questions, Paula, because I know you deal with this all the time. I get patients that come to me and they're on methadone and they want to transition over to buprenorphine. How do you do that transition in a 
uncomfortable fashion? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, you get this all the time, right? You get folks who are on methadone and they're done with it or they're sick of it or they don't want to do it anymore. There's two trains of thought with this, Darlene. Classically, well, first of all, I would dig in a bit and find out why someone wants to switch, see what's going on. And is it a financial reason? Is it that they're not tolerating methadone well? Is it they're not doing well on the methadone? And then, of course, you want to honor people's choice, right? I know there are some programs that they don't want to let their people change. And I don't know. I don't really understand that. It has to be patient driven. But do you want to understand what the history is and have they ever transitioned before? And then there's two general approaches. One, and this is the old old way, the classic way, is to wait for the patient to be tapered down to a dose of daily stable dose of methadone of 30 milligrams or less. Now, I guess you could do 40 milligrams or less at a pinch, but goal would be to taper your patient down to 30 milligrams or less, make sure that they're at steady state so they're not withdrawing, they're stable. So at least a week, right? Five to seven days. And then you would stop the method, which, okay, so let's just talk about that. That's tricky for people, right? Not a lot of people, now some people are stable at 30 milligrams or less. A lot of people are at higher doses. And so they have to get down to 30 milligrams, which tapering methadone typically is done quite slowly. And then when we do the transition, because we all understand that buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist and can displace full opioids off of the mu receptor, inducing severe withdrawal. And this is particularly true for methadone because methadone sticks around for so long because with its half-life being variable and at least about 24 hours, you stop methadone at least 48 hours before starting buprenorphine. I actually have to say, I tell people to wait 72 hours because I've had some quite a few people go into withdrawal when they initiate buprenorphine after 48 hours. That's a long time to have people go without any medication for 72 hours. They often go into withdrawal. Well, they do go into withdrawal. They feel pretty horrible. You have to give them a lot of support. We typically use adjunctive medications like clonidine, hydroxazine, trazodone, acetaminophen, loperamide, etc., to help treat their symptoms of withdrawal. And you give them a lot of psychosocial support so that they can make this transition. And then you initiate buprenorphine just like you would for any other patient. Initiate at a dose of four or eight milligrams when they're insufficient withdrawal and continue to dose until they have resolution of their withdrawal. That's one way to do it. And I, I don't know about you, Darlene, but every time I've done this, a lot of people do it and, and they, they make that 48 to 72 hour stretch. It's not like when you start buprenorphine for someone who's on a short acting opioid, people just don't feel well for a few days. It just takes them a good few days to settle into buprenorphine because methadone is stored in lots of different tissue reservoirs and it takes a while for it to come out. Back to that five half-lives. I agree, Paula. Every time it's just really hard. I can remember, oh my gosh, this would have been probably 10 or 12 years ago. I was a pretty new practitioner and the very first time I did this with a patient and they, you have to number one, have an extremely motivated patient who wants to do it. And so that's your first step. I had this patient came in and we said, okay. And I did that same thing. I was like, let's go 72 hours. And we did that. I tried all these support meds and at 24 hours, he just calls says, I'm not doing well and I'm having all these symptoms. And I said, oh, man, you just, you just can't be in that much withdrawal. So come in and see me. And I saw him and he looked terrible. So we kind of upped his comfort meds. And then at 48 hours, he's like, I'm doing terrible. I'm running fevers. And I said, you can't be like, I said, that's, I said, something's wrong. I said, come in. I checked him and I was just like this. He looked absolutely terrible, but this was flu season. And I tested him. This poor guy contracted influenza A in the middle of his like transition. Oh my gosh. You know, and we would joke about it. Like, cause he was my patient for years after that. And I just, but he, he made, 
made it. He stuck it out. He said, no way am I going back. Oh, so always a- look for look for something else if it really goes south. That was my <laughs> lesson. True. Make sure you keep your family medicine hat on too. <laughs> but you know, you're right though. People need to be really motivated. But I've had very motivated patients who do this and they do it. I mean, they're normally people who've been on methadone for years and they've done it. They're they're kind of tough people, you know, they've been in recovery for a long time. They're used to obeying the rules and they do it. Honestly, it t- they don't feel great. The other way, the second way, which is much, I think it's much more humane and it's becoming much more mainstream is to slowly titrate. I mean, microdosing is the quotation marks, but low, very, the real term would be very low dose buprenorphine initiation. The method that we've discussed in a prior podcast in season two on February 7th, you can go back and listen to our episode. There's a way to initiate buprenorphine while people are still on methadone. You have to do extremely low doses. You're almost homeopathic dosing. Do it daily, not every couple of hours. And you slowly titrate them onto buprenorphine, increasing the dose while they're still on methadone. And then you decrease their methadone down and take them off once they're on a therapeutic dose of buprenorphine. So it takes a specialist, I think, to help you do that. I wouldn't do that. Well, obviously you're not managing someone's methadone, but if you have a patient come to you in the outpatient setting and they're like, listen, I'm on methadone. I want you to put me on buprenorphine. I would say seek the help of an addiction specialist to to do that. It's the one time, well, not the one time, but it really is a time where you need to get someone who's board certified, fellowship trained in addiction to help you with this because people can feel so terrible and we don't want to participate in that. So just do that to help them transition. That would be my recommendation anyway, Darlene. Oh, I guess the third, sorry, I guess the third option would be to admit, tell them to be, go get admitted and do it inpatient, like in a medically managed withdrawal unit. But honestly, insurance do- doesn't often pay for that. And some hospitals won't take patients on certain doses of methadone. So it depends on who's running the service and if someone will do that for you. But I know when I was working at a psychiatric hospital in a detox unit, we had a lot of patients coming in on high dose methadone and they would just be admitted just so that we could help them with the transition and give them a lot of support. And that was that was really helpful as well. So that's an, that might be an option. Yeah, I if you can, that is and I have like older patients and ones with comorbidities, I have recommended that option. It's just becoming more of a challenge. But this is a point of advocacy that really that should always be an option for our patients. Because I agree, Paula, that really for many patients is the best option. Awesome. What about when you just have patients who come to you? So you're the methadone clinic provider, and they just want to taper? Should patients taper? And how do you taper them if they choose to taper? Well, yeah, I mean, patients have a right to their own health care and their own choices. So I don't think we can ever tell people they can't taper. Now, in methadone clinics, a lot of times people will admit and want to just come in for a short amount of time and then leave. And actually, some programs have r- rules and restrictions where they won't admit you if they know you want to do that. In ge- so in general, because of the data, we that longer treatment results in better outcomes, we encourage people to stay on a maintenance dose of methadone until their treatment goals are met. So in other words, until they have gotten a job and gotten housing or gotten their finances back on track, gone through court, etc., whatever their goals are, as well as gain some stability in terms of their recovery, right? Reduce their use, stop their use. However, patients have autonomy. So we encourage them to use their whole treatment team to make a decision, talk to their therapist, their family, and then obviously we we counsel with them whether or not it's a good time to taper, but it, ultimately it's their choice. When tapering methadone, uh, the rule is to go slowly and to 
decrease about 5 to 10% of their current dose every week to two weeks. And it just depends on the person. Some people tolerate tapering really well, other people don't. And some people are very anxious about tapering and other people are not. If you have someone on 100 milligrams stable dose and they want to taper down and they've been super stable for years, they're ready to make a change, you know, say, okay, well, 10% of that is 10 milligrams a week. That's very aggressive. So I would say, you know, let's start at, if it was me, if I was your doctor, I would say, how about we start with decreasing you by five milligrams every two weeks? I want to see you every four weeks to see how you're doing. At any point, we can slow it down or change it. We can also do blind tapering, which is very common. And also we need to adjust your taper schedule as you get down to a lower dose, because obviously once you get down to 50 milligrams, five milligrams every two weeks is 10%. And we may need to slow it down and adjust it at that point. But the typical rule is five to 10% every one to two weeks, highly variable. You may want to do it blinded. And by what I mean by that is if the patient trusts you, if the client trusts you, and they're very anxious about knowing what those numbers are. You could say, let me put it in my hands. I promise I will attempt to give you the most humane taper possible that you won't even feel. And I write the taper that they don't know. So I might say, okay, I'm going to decrease them by three milligrams every six days, but they don't know that that's occurring. Therefore, it doesn't get in their head. By the time that they've noticed there's a difference, they've kind of stabilized out. And that seems to be especially helpful for people once they get down to the bottom of their taper. That's really interesting. And there's a lot of data that supports blind tapers. I often wish we had that with buprenorphine. If we had an ability for the medicine to not look different, I agree. it would be helpful. What else? Final thoughts, Paula? What haven't we covered? Well, this is a huge topic. I mean, we could probably have a five-part series on methadone alone. So just know that there's lots of resources out there if you want to learn more. The SAMHSA Tip 63 is a very helpful resource. There's also some older resources from SAMHSA that are specifically for methadone that are very good. The ASAM National Practice Guideline for the Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder has some good resources in there. PCSS MAT, the PCSS online webinar program is a great resource. I would say, you know, to gain more information about methadone and methadone clinics, but I would say, what are we missing? I'm sure we're missing a ton. We haven't talked about methadone in pregnancy. We haven't talked about methadone in incarcerated people or chronic pain patients. But what I would say is, you know, methadone, unfortunately, Unfortunately, holds a lot of stigma, especially in 12-step communities, within the medical community. And I think it's unfair because the data supports that this is a very helpful medication. It's robustly studied. It has a bad rap probably because it is a full opioid agonist and people do run into trouble with it. They do divert it. They do sometimes feel intoxicated with it. They do take other drugs with it to potentiate its effect. That's why it's so regulated. I think we know we need to recognize it for what it is. It's a very powerful, very, very useful medication with a lot of risks, just like, oh, insulin, same thing, a lot of cardiac meds. So we have to recognize it's very helpful, have to be careful with the prescribing. It's our responsibility as addiction and medical providers to give our patients informed consent about their options. When they present to you with an opioid use disorder, you should not just be a one-trick pony and tell them, go to AA, do Vivitrol, which is extended release naltrexone, get on buprenorphine or suboxone. They have a right to know that they can choose methadone as a treatment option that may very well save 
save their life and be the perfect fit for them. And I don't think people always get that option offered to them. So they, you should be able to offer that to your patients. That would be my final thought. I think that's fantastic. I think all those resources are very helpful. We use them all the time. And thank you, Paula. I learned a lot. Oh, so me that too. helps me as well. And hopefully our listeners will appreciate it. Have a great night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.